Good morning, everyone. Would you join me in prayer, please? Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for those that have been able to make it. And it is a delight to be able to be reminded of your love and your grace and how you come to us. You come near to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are near to us through your Spirit who abides in us and indwells us. Uh, You are near to us in that you have united this uh, group of members into the spiritual temple of of God here in Jersey Shore, and you indwell us. So this morning we meet uh, together, and you are near, and you are here. What a tremendous privilege to be reminded that you are the Lord of your church. We come to you and pray that you give us attention to the Word, and you might meet us at our point of need. And uh, Lord, strengthen us and give us the truth that we need to live this life victoriously. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. this morning's message is entitled the god of broken-hearted people the god of broken-hearted people i'd like you to join me in exodus please the book of exodus the first chapter i'm sure that if you've been following the news at all You've heard the story of what's been going on in the Middle East. It is not pretty. It is uh, getting, from human point of view, worse. And last week there were 21 Christians. They were Coptic Christians. They are part of the Coptic church in Egypt. I don't know whether they were uh, true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the biblical sense or not, but they were uh, identified with that church, and those 21 were captured by ISIS. And eventually, uh, they were purportedly beheaded, and they have released a video uh, showing that. And, and one of the things that that does, I think, is it, it helps us to re- be reminded from the Scriptures that uh, Jesus said to the church that those things would happen through the years and the centuries. Christians would be martyred. And I think one of the things that if if we stop and think about that and not look at it as a news report... But if we look at it as individuals, we think of those those 21 individuals and we realize that there are at least 21 families that are brokenhearted. Would you agree with that? That that is an overwhelming sense of grief and it is, it is meant to produce and foment fear and paralysis among those who are not uh, of of that Islamic persuasion, among those who are in the church. Um. It's a severe act. This impacts us. It should, anyway. The Scriptures uh, remind us repeatedly to not see ourselves in isolation. And I know it's easy to do that because we get together with each other every week, right? And and we we think of local church. We preach local church. We believe in local church. We believe in, in the local church being under the headship and the direction of Jesus Christ, right? But the reality is we are connected to the greater body of Christ. And so what happens to the body of Christ around the world does affect us. That's why the scriptures remind us to to pray for those brethren that are in other countries and pray for those that are in prison. The book of Hebrews tells us we weep with those who weep. This lesson also teaches us that we ought to be prepared because our time is coming. But closer to us today is the fact that we are a church that is full of broken-hearted people as well. 
not because we're undergoing persecution yet, but perhaps because of of ongoing health concerns that don't seem to have any relief. We have brokenhearted people because of personal choices or people that are brokenhearted because of the choices and actions of other people. We have brokenhearted people because of grief or because of situations that don't seem to be changing or because of situations that have changed drastically and it caught us off guard. We have people that are brokenhearted today perhaps because of children or grandchildren who do not walk in the faith. We are a congregation of broken-hearted people. One of the things that just kind of brought this right up to the surface in my life was yesterday morning. I'm getting ready. I'm trying to get out of the house. I want to do it in a timely way. I need to be somewhere by 10.15. And my, my phone rings. I didn't have my cell phone on at that point. I wanted to be uninterrupted because I was trying to finish the the sermon for Roger's funeral. So I left the cell phone off and, and all of a sudden the house phone rings. And of course, you know, once the house phone rings, you lose your mobility. So now this con- conversation is going to go on a little bit longer. And it was my daughter, Heidi, and the first words out of her mouth were, Dad, help. Could have been the mood I was in, but it just kind of made my stomach rise to my throat. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Well, I can put your mind at ease because my mind was at ease. It really wasn't that big of a thing. But when somebody says that to you, if you're a dad or, or somebody else, it really grabs you, doesn't it? Hey, what happened, you know? Uh, this morning, though, uh, you may be in that situation. And what you need to remember is you can go to your Abba, Father in Heaven, and you can say, Dad, Help. And I want to talk to you this morning about the God of the brokenhearted from the first three chapters of the book of Exodus. And in doing so, what we're going to do is not try to explain every single word or every single verse because we're going to assume some Bible knowledge on the part. But if we step back and look at those first three chapters in terms of a panorama, we're going to learn some things about our God and sometimes how He is operating in our life just like He was operating in the life of Israel. So join me please in Exodus chapter 1 as we learn a little bit more of our God, the God who ministers to the brokenhearted. The first thing I want to tell you this morning is this. If you're going to take some notes, I'll give you some sentences that give you my thinking as we work through the chapters. Number one, God is there when the situation changes from really good to really bad. God is there when the situation changes from really good to really bad and it leads to a broken heart. We find in the beginning of the chapter of chapter 1 the story of how Jacob's family which was numbering 70 when they went to Egypt has exploded in growth just like God said it would. And we learn in verse 6 that Joseph dies and all of his brothers die and all of that generation that generation who had experienced firsthand the famine and the journey to Egypt and how God had provided for them in the northeastern part of Egypt in that area called Goshen. Verse 7 helps us to see though that God is active in the affairs of the descendants of Jacob and they are prospering and they are uh, experiencing growth. The sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly 
and they multiplied and they became exceedingly mighty so that the the land was filled with them. And so we see God carrying out his promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the situation is really good here uh, under the leadership of Joseph and just after Joseph, um, there is the flourishing of the people of God, the Israelites. The situation is really good. They are prominent. They have protection. They have honor. Uh, the land in which they are in is, is producing for them, and things are really, really good for the family of Jacob. Verse 8 introduces a change in the situation. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built from for Pharaoh storage cities uh, named Pithom and Ramses. All right, this is the story. This is the story when the good situation goes really bad really quickly and there are people that have broken hearts. The situation has changed. I want you to think with me about a definition of brokenhearted this, this morning just from scriptures. Let's consider a couple different re- uh, references. Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 61.1 talks about the ministry of the Messiah when he would come the first time. Uh, when Jesus read this passage in the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, the word of God is fulfilled in your ears today. And in Isaiah 61.1, he talks about the fact that the Messiah would come to bind up the brokenhearted. The scriptures give us some other indications of what we're talking about here. Proverbs 15.13 says, when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Uh, Proverbs 18.14 says, The spirit of man can endure sickness, but a broken spirit who can bear. So as we try to formulate some kind of an understanding of what it means to be brokenhearted, there is a sense in which we're talking about a spiritual and a mental or emotional ache. It is a, it is a sadness and a despair that leads to the fact, as Proverbs says, that a, that a person will just about give up on life. And, and Paul, the great apostle, under the, the strain of ministry, enduring not only personal attacks against his character, but also talking about all of the burden of the churches that he started, he said, we had arrived at the point of despair in 2 Corinthians 4. And, and then he talks about God who comforts the depressed sent us Titus and he brought good news. It helps us to flesh out a little bit more. What is it? What are we talking about? We talk about being brokenhearted. We, we have to remember that sometimes as younger listeners uh, engage with the message, they think concretely. Adults have the opportunity and the ability to think abstractly and we do word pictures really well and kids are thinking, how does my heart fall? apart you know we're not talking about the pumper we're talking about the inner man and being overwhelmed with a a spiritual sadness and despair that leads to just about giving up hope 
I think it's it's possible that we acknowledge the fact that Israel could have been in this situation and, and all of a sudden a new pharaoh comes up in the land and the situation that was really, really good goes to really, really bad fast. In the midst of this change, though, we do see God working. <clears throat> we see in verse... Uh, excuse me, verse 12, there we go, verse 12, that the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. And the more that they multiplied, the more that they spread out so that the Egyptians were in the dread of of the sons of Israel. And, And so what we see here is the more that they flourish, the more Pharaoh tries to stop it. And so he gets in touch with the Hebrew midwives. And we meet two ladies in this passage. Their names are Shipra and Pua. Those are a little bit tricky. Be careful how we say those because it could be a tongue twister. And I'm so thankful we don't have any babies in the nursery named either one of those girls. Okay. Uh, Verse 15. The situation goes from bad to worse. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Pua, and he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon a birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. If it's a, a daughter, you shall let her live. He wants them to practice infanticide. I was talking about this passage the other day with my family around the table. And uh, the scriptures tell us that as you get ready to think about the, the exodus out of Egypt, there are going to be 600,000 men that are able to take up the sword and fight. That would be meritable age men, age 20 to 60. If we kind of do a little bit of math and we think about God balancing things out and allowing Israel to grow and flourish, it wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility to think that there's probably a matching amount of maybe 400 to 6,000 women of that age as well. I don't think I'm stretching it. Can you imagine how many babies could be born every day if you had just 400,000 women who were pregnant every year? Because God's calling, causing them to be fruitful and multiply. You understand. And it said the more that the, the Egyptians put the pressure on them, the more babies that they had. So uh, we did the math by a calculator around the table. That's over 1,100 babies born every day. I just want you to know that these two ladies didn't deliver all those babies. These two ladies, though, uh, represent uh, the, the work and the impact that midwives were having. And these two ladies are selected by God, put into the biblical record. And what they do is they show that God is in the business of ministering to brokenhearted people, even in the midst of the situation. Because here is the most powerful king on the planet. And he is saying, I want you to practice the killing of your own people. I want you to practice infanticide. I want you to practice uh, semi-genocide. Kill all the men. Let the women live. And our family asked the question, why did God let the women live? And it's because women can be married off to Egyptian men. And women without men can't keep the, the population growing. You can keep that under check. But we see God working because these two women would not do that. It says... In verse 17, that they feared God and they did not do as the king commanded. The king called him in on it, called him on the carpet. 
and said, why are you letting the boys live? And, and in this particular part of the story, there is a fear factor, and God records it accurately. And he says, you know, uh, Israelite women are different than Egyptian women. Israelite women are, are stronger, and they're more vigorous, and they deliver quicker, and, and uh, they're just having their babies before we get there. I don't know about you ladies, but let's just think about that. <clears throat> Ever since the Garden of Eden, God said that there would be pain in childbirth. And I don't think he ever gave the Israelite women a pass on it. Do you? So what we see here is a couple of women that, that are really intimidated by the most powerful guy on the planet. And at that moment, it looks like they fudged the truth quite a bit. But overall, God says, you know, they, they lived out their faith. They did not murder the babies. And God blesses them and gives them a family of their own. And uh, I want you to see something through this story these two women are involved in the process of preserving the people of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about the significance of Exodus 1 to your life story or not, but the fact is that these two women get honored by God because they were leaders. They were women who, in the midst of great sadness and of great pressure, these two women who had been commanded to sin, rose up and said, we won't do it, we will fear God, and we will do what God wants us to do right now. Regardless of whether anybody else does or not. Isn't that good? Do you know why that's good? Because God preserves Israel, and Jesus is born because of these two women who do the right thing. That's what the text is telling us. The family of Jacob is preserved because of these two women. They get credit for it in God's eyes. What I want us to see as we consider this first point is that God is there when the situation changes from really good to really bad is this. God often works to accomplish His plan in the midst of heartache. And we learn from these two women that when the pressure is on, what is really inside of a person is what comes out. When the pressure is on and things become spiritually uncomfortable, what is really inside of the person is what comes out. And growth, you know you're growing when you find yourself running to God in tears and in prayer as your strong tower, as your fortress, as your comforter when something really good goes really bad really quickly. So ask yourself the question this morning, do you believe that God is there in your situation that perhaps has gone from really good to really bad? Are you running to the strong tower? Are you taking your prayers and your tears and your concerns and, and trusting God enough to do the next right thing even though the pressure is on because that's what Shipra and Pua do. The story doesn't stop there though. It moves on into chapter 2 and here's the second thing I want you to see. God is there when the situation that leads to brokenness and heartache is not resolved quickly. God is there when the situation is not resolved quickly. In other words, the solution is delayed. We're already told by the writer, who is Moses, looking back, 
These people are enslaved and they're suffering and their taskmasters are very difficult. But chapter 2 gives us a story. And in the midst of, of suffering for all of the children of Israel, God zooms in with His lens in His story and He focuses on one family. It's the family of Amram and Jochebed and they have a son named Moses. And out of all of Israel, the story goes in with a telephoto lens on this chapter. And in the midst of babies dying and people suffering and being enslaved, God takes the time to give us the details of what He is doing. And what He is doing is focusing on one family and, and where the help is going to come from. My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Where is the help going to come from for God's people? Well, it's going to come from Moses, and we know that. But it doesn't come right away. The whole chapter is about Moses and how he was born and and how his mother saw that he was a beautiful baby boy and she didn't put him to death. She hid him for as long as she could. The Bible says when she could hide him no longer after three months, she made that that basket, that reed basket, and covered it with, made it waterproof and put her son in that and set it in the Nile River and his older sister Miriam kept guard over that basket. So one day Pharaoh's daughter came along and found that basket and said, oh, this is one of the Hebrew boys. One of the Hebrew boys. So nonchalant almost about it. Her daddy is the murderer of all these people. And she said, oh, that's a Hebrew boy. Miriam speaks up and says, you want me to go get somebody to be able to nurse that child for you? And she said, yes. And in the providence of God, of course, the sovereignty of God, she goes and gets Moses' mother and And Moses' mother has the opportunity to nurse him and raise him up until he is weaned and and do as much teaching in Moses' life about the God of their fathers, telling Moses about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as much as she could possibly give to him before he left her care. That is what Moses' mother, Jochebed, does. You talk about a life of impact in a few short years. That's Jochebed. But understand this, folks. While you and I are zeroing in on the story of Moses and how God is raising up the leader, and we say, all right, Jochebed is a woman of faith. She doesn't kill her son. All right, we have Moses and God is doing something. Understand this, that in the larger context, what's going on with everybody else? Everybody else, there are still dead babies. And there is still suffering and there is still the slavery and there is still the gathering of straw to make the bricks and God's people are still crying out. And our story accelerates. We learn about the birth of Moses and all of a sudden he gets to the age of 40. It's been 40 years. 40 years and people are crying out. And I think it's natural to look at the story from God's point of view and to see him working But I also think it's appropriate to realize that as he is working, there is a perspective that could arise from the point of a human person, a human being that says, God is delaying. God, where are you? Where are you and what are you doing? And when are you going to resolve this? Do you ever feel that way? And somehow in the story, as we look at Moses from verses 11 and following, we realize that he has some sense of being a deliverer. 
he must have somehow come to the conclusion that God wanted to use him, but he takes matters into his own hands. See, as God is, God is working in the life of Moses by saving the life of the future deliverer of Israel, you need to remember that not everyone else saw the deliverer or experienced the deliverance. That's my point. As you look at the passage, we, we want to focus on Moses, but there's also the backstory. Everyone doesn't get delivered. Everyone doesn't experience relief. Chapter 2 covers 80 years of an unchanging circumstance. And it's probably longer than that. The slavery of Israel lasted longer than 80 years. And what I want us to remember is that God is there when the situation that leads to our brokenness and heartache is not resolved quickly. That's not to discourage people. But what I want us to do is I want us to realize that even if God does not remove that which initially led to our brokenheartedness, we don't have to live the rest of life in a state of brokenheartedness because God is still there. God enables us, James says, to experience joy even in the crucible of trials. The psalmist David and others continually remind us of the imagery of our God who is a strong tower. He is a fortress. We, we run to Him and righteous are safe. We run to Him. He is our shield, our, our protector. He is the one that, that carries us. But make no mistake, some of these people in Exodus chapter 2 went through their entire life praying and crying and never experiencing the relief that they longed for so badly. So as you consider this, I want you to think about this morning, what is it that you are waiting upon God to do? And the second question would be be this. If you believe your happiness and wholeness depends on the removal of that trial, it is likely that that trial will not be removed. Because what God wants us to do is to find our delight in Him. To find our delight in Him. Trials are what what teach us over and over that God is enough. That He is enough. That's why David can say, after all that he went through, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. David's heartbeat, David's theology that he lived out every moment of every day is Jesus has me and I have Jesus. And that's enough. Jesus has me. He is my shepherd. I am his sheep. He has me. And I have Jesus. He's my shepherd. And and I have everything I need. I shall not want. He, He makes me lie down in green pastures and he restores my soul. I want you to know God might not remove the situation that led to my brokenheartedness, but He will be enough to give me joy through it. 
I know I used this quote recently, but it's there, and, and when you can't forget it, it means a lot. And, and Spurgeon was a, a fantastic man of God who suffered greatly with brokenheartedness and despair at times. And he said, I have learned to kiss the waves that drive me into the rock of ages. What a great metaphor of how to embrace trials and, and to embrace your brokenheartedness and say, oh, I'm going to give thanks because Jesus is more precious to me. I think that's where we want to be, and I think that's where God would want us to be too. There's a third part to this story. Here's what it is. God is there, and He assures the brokenhearted that He has been there the whole time. God is there, and He assures the brokenhearted that He has been there the whole time. Would you look at chapter 3? Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. I just want to stop and give you a time stamp. It's kind of like a time stamp on a picture you take with your camera or your video camera, all right? Time stamp for chapter 2 is 80 years. 80 years have passed. That's the time stamp. We, we meet Moses. He was 40 years in the court of Pharaoh, and now he's been 40 years out in the wilderness. He is married. He has a couple of sons. He's been serving his father-in-law Jethro as a shepherd, and we meet God, and we meet Moses. <clears throat> and we learn that God is working in his time, and he does things his way, and he is not surprised by our circumstances. You remember what happened in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Moses rose up and thought he would be the deliverer, and he, he killed an Egyptian. He thought he got away with it, but God brought it to light, and Moses fled for his life because Pharaoh was angry and was going to kill him. He fled into the desert, and that, that takes up 40 years of his life. And And one of the things that we learn about that is that uh, God works in His time and He does things His way and He's not surprised uh, by our circumstances. And His timing for working in a situation, even with people that have a broken heart, will not be altered by any decisions or behaviors of other people. God is going to do what God is going to do and He is going to do it according to His timetable and no action or decision on the part of me or anybody else is going to alter God's plan. And the fact that Mo Moses tried to hurry the situation up and deliver God's people ahead of time didn't change how God was going to work. And God was not caught off guard. He was not unaware of what was going to happen. And I think that's a, a powerful truth that maybe we need to focus on in our own lives as we think about what God is doing. Sometimes it's possible for us to act, to get ahead of God and to do things in human effort. And one of the reminders as we look at the life of Moses in chapter 2 is that we ought to pray always for the right action to be reunited with the right timing. The right action united with the right timing is a prayer request always because it is so easy to get ahead of God. What's God doing? In chapter 2, verses 16 to 25, God has Moses out in the wilderness and He is preparing him. He is refining him. Until finally we get to chapter 3 and we see that God calls Moses. 
And one of the things that we learn through the call of Moses about our God is that God has been there. And we look at this story and we realize that he is assuring the brokenhearted that he was there all the time. He was there all the time. God calls Moses. The angel of the Lord appears to him. We're looking at chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and he beheld the bush was was burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I've got to take a look at this. Verse 3. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses was getting ready to come near and look at it, he calls to him and he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And he says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. We have the calling of Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a land good and spacious, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I've seen the oppression. Verse 10, Therefore come now, I will send you to Pharaoh. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see this morning. God was there. Past tense. God is here. Present tense. And he acts on behalf of the brokenhearted. The end of chapter 2, we read these words. It says, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. God was there, and God is here, and he acts on behalf of the brokenhearted. Here's what I want you to do personally by, by way of thinking how this passage would relate to you. Number one, Remind yourself of the one that you love and worship. Verse 6 reminds us that He is holy. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. God is here. This is our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. Present tense. Second thing is to remind yourself again and again that God is active in your situation right now. Notice what He tells Moses. This is applicable to us as well. Verse 6, he says, here's who I am. Verse 7, here's what I am doing. Number 1, verse 7, I have surely seen. You worship and you love the God who sees. Don't allow your situation to cloud how you look at it so much that you are responding emotionally and not biblically. God sees. He is not blind. The second thing is he says, I have given heed to their cry. He not only says, I see, but I hear. I hear you. God is not deaf to the prayers and the cries of His people. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that the Spirit of God groans when we groan. Sometimes you just can't talk. It just doesn't come out. 
You don't know what to say or how to say it, but you know you're broken before God. And the writer of Romans, Paul, says that the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be uttered, with groanings that we can't understand, but they are acceptable prayers to God and and the Spirit goes to God for us. The third thing I want you to see is that he says, I know, I see, I hear, and the end of verse 7, I am aware of their sufferings. Please, when you worship in your heartache, fight against the lie of the devil who would accuse God of not caring about you and not knowing what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. There's not a situation that comes up in our life that takes him by surprise. It doesn't catch him off guard. He knows about it. It can be a shock to us. It's never a shock to God. And there is a comfort. There is a huge comfort when we look at this passage and we realize that what God told Moses is just as applicable to us today. God sees, God hears, God knows. And fourth, God has a plan. God is always accomplishing his plan. God says, I have come down to deliver them and I'm going to send you to Moses. God's not going to send you and me Moses today, but he does have a plan. And he does remind us that in the course of that plan, there is a desire to mold us and to shape us and to purify us and to refine us so that as we continue along in the journey of faith, we resemble Jesus Christ more and more. He's pressing us into the image of Christ. He is heating us in the kiln of life to burn out the dross and the impurities of our faith so that our faith comes out more precious than gold and silver. He is creating an, an, a, a flexibility in us so that we will continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all the way to the end. What I want you to understand today is I think that broken-hearted people need to be reminded of their caring and loving Savior. God was there. God is here. And God is acting on your behalf. Remember that God is groaning with you through the prayers of the Spirit. And so this morning, I encourage you to run to the strong tower. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Finally, you need to, in your brokenheartedness, make sure that you're continuing to get into the Word because there you learn Jesus, you meet Jesus, you grow in Jesus, and you experience the comfort of Jesus. Jesus tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, everybody has storms in life, but it is the person that stays anchored on the person of Christ and His Word whose life stands when the storm passes. Broken-hearted people need a rock-solid Savior. That's our God. One of the great things about Roger's life that teaches us this principle is the fact that at the end, over these last two months, there was a, a great sense of brokenheartedness there was a great sense of brokenheartedness because one of the things that characterized his life so much was the study of the Word of God 
and how much he delighted in sharing it with other people. And even in his old age, he was active in evangelism and he would go to Fulmer's. And we have a number of people that go to Fulmer's and he would preach. And up at Williamsport Home, he and Eleonora had Bible studies with the residents up at Williamsport Home. And he is in his 80s and he is evangelizing people and trying to help people see the truth of Jesus Christ. But when things got really bad at the end, he was brokenhearted when he lost his vision because he couldn't read and study God's word anymore. And in the midst of that despair and heartache, he said, what am I going to do? How am I going to serve Christ? I can't read anymore. I can't study. But God came to his aid in the midst of that brokenheartedness. God still used him all the way to the end to be a witness, to be an encourager, to bring joy. Roger died in love with Jesus Christ. Roger exemplifies to us what it means to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ all the way to the end. He also is a great illustration of what it means to persevere through brokenheartedness. This morning, I invite you to go to Jesus who will help you to persevere through brokenheartedness. Let's pray. God, you are able to keep us. You're able to keep us from falling and And Lord, it could be falling into outright sin and disobedience. But you're also able to keep us from falling into uh, inactivity. Keep us from falling into despair. Keep us from falling into giving up or being cynical. You're able to keep us. You bind up the brokenhearted. You bind up those who are weak and vulnerable. You comfort. That's one of the ministries of your spirit. You give comfort and encouragement. Well, God, we need that. We need it desperately. And whatever whatever the situation that, that an individual could be longing for this morning, if, if it would be different, uh, may they discover the sweetness of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency while they are waiting. We would give you our burdens and lay them at your feet now. In Jesus' name, amen.